Welcome to today's reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for today, March 9th, 2023. It's a Thursday. I'm your reader, Ann Coke Gare, and here is our first story. Supervisors compromise on spending. Dubuque County Board plans to vote on maximum limit at a short meeting on Friday by Benjamin Fisher. A split Dubuque County Board of Supervisors reached consensus on a maximum spending limit for next fiscal year with plans to review and cut spending proposals after a state change significantly cut taxable property valuations. The maximum spending limit agreed upon Monday by Supervisors Ann McDonoghue and Harley Potholf would require a property tax levy increase of $0.20 per $1,000 of taxable property value to be fully funded, even though it would collect less revenue than supervisors' original spending proposals would require. But Pothoff and Supervisor Wayne Kenneker said they would cut proposed spending further before a final budget is approved to lower the levy increase needed. The county's maximum spending level is an administrative step required by the state of Iowa, drawing a line which counties cannot exceed. The Board of Supervisors plans to vote on the maximum limit at a short meeting on Friday. Quote, that seems like a compromise number to me that's going to make this budget be looked at with a fine-toothed comb, end quote, said McDonough, who made the motion for the limit. Pothoff agreed with the limit and pledged to still reduce spending. Quote, I don't want to see a levy rate increase either, end quote, he said. We will have a lot of budget work to do here and hopefully get it down to where we won't have to increase, end quote. The Board of Supervisors previously discussed a maximum spending rate that would also have required a 20-cent levy increase, but the Iowa legislature passed a law that required local government's to reassess taxable property valuation due to a state agency's miscalculation of a previously passed tax cut for landlords. Counties also face new state cuts, county taxes phasing in for the next fiscal year for commercial, industrial, and railroad properties. City and county assessors across the state, therefore, had to recalculate the the property valuations on which governments base their budgets. Quote, instead of continuing with the same dollar ask, parentheses, the board, kept the same levy ask, which generates fewer dollars because of the new valuations. Budget Director Stella Rundy said after the meeting, the state changes meant that if the Dubuque County kept its current levy rate, $9.01 per $1,000 of taxable value, it would receive $232,862 less in revenue than it will have received in the fiscal year that ends June 30th. Kanneker pointed out that the total decrease was not particularly alarming relative to the county's total revenues, $34.6 million in the current fiscal year. So this valuation, or change, will keep talking about, which sounds so scary, has reduced our tax revenue by about a quarter of a million dollars, he said. I don't see why we're concerned when we have almost 29% fund balance at the end. Pothoff said, though, that the basic operating expenses had risen sharply with inflation. 
The Board of Supervisors also had reached consensus on around $3 million in projects that were requested requested or required by department heads in the next fiscal year. The $230,000 isn't that scary of a number, maybe, but expenses went up and it takes us backward, he said. McDonough also said that any reduction of re- in revenue would be alarming as it reversed growth going back de- decades, even as the board had reduced levy rates 10 years in a row. Rundy explained that because the valuations as previously calculated prior to the state change were expected to increase revenues by around $625,000, even at the county's current levy rate, the $232,862 hole in revenues by leaving the current levy rate really would mean a difference of $858,685. Sticking with the current levy rate and keeping the spending levies previously supported by a consensus of the board would require drawing county reserves below the minimum 30% of annual budget, which Rendy said was considered best practice. Quote, originally what took us 20 cents of levy to achieve now takes almost 37 cents, she said. Kanneker said that he would not be not support even a maximum limit, which allowed for a levy increase, saying he was more comfortable with a lower levy of reserves and that he preferred more spending cuts. Quote, even without increasing the levy, we can still end up at a 28% full balance, he said. If you're still not comfortable with the fund balance, I think there are still $1 million in expenses that could be cut. McDonough said she was uncomfortable with the cutting spending further that was already included in the budget proposal on Wednesday. Quote, we went through those projects very carefully. And I think very conservatively, she said. County engineer Russell Weber had already cut a $2 million repaving of Girl Scout Road from his budget request for next fiscal year, pushing it off a year. County attorney Scott Nelson also offered to postpone an attorney position he would need to devote to county work. It came to Potthoff to meet McDonough at the proposed maximum limit which he did largely to protect reserves. Quote, my biggest concern is looking toward the future, not getting us in a bad spot, end quote, he said. Quote, I'm willing to cut out the budget, out of the budget, but I want to have some leeway, end quote. Next article, A Life Remembered. Dubuque theater enthusiast put others in spotlight. Jeff Tebby, a driving force behind the scenes of many local productions, died last month at age 50. By Grace Neeland. Jeffrey Tebby wasn't for often in the limelight, but he knew how to help other people find their own. The longtime theater enthusiast from Dubuque built an impressive repertoire over the years directing a variety of community shows in Dubuque and Sioux City. When he read a script, he could picture the show in his mind, and he worked hard with the actors and crew to bring that vision to life for the benefit of the audience. Quote, there was no ego with Jeff, said Jeff's wife and fellow performer, Kristen Tebby. He was in service of the story and making the production the best it could be. 
He saw it as kind of an invisible job, but he loved it. Jeff died February 16th from a heart attack. He was 50 years old. He grew up in Springbrook, Iowa, the second of five children born to Al and Gladys Tebby. He was curious and creative, but also a bit accident-prone. He broke his collarbone several times, seven times as a kid, three times on one side and four on the other. It got to the point where I'd come home and he'd be holding his arm in a certain way and I'd go, oh, Jeff, no, and he'd be sitting there going, sorry, Mom, recalled Jeff's mother, Gladys. He developed a love of performance early at a 4-H variety show where he took first place with an outfit he put together with $2 and a pair of blue tennis shoes. He continued that hobby in high school, performing a variety of schools and plays and musicals. In addition to the roles he assumed on stage, he also took quickly to the caring older brother role at home. He would buy sodas for his little siblings and let them sit with him at the back of the school bus, a high honor for elementary students usually expected to sit at the front. In kindergarten, we had a show and tell, and I was bringing my doll, and Jeff Jeff was just the best, said Jeff's sister, Joe Chaplin. He let me sit with him on the bus, and he knew I needed room for my doll to sit next to me, so it was basically like squeezing in three people into a seat. Jeff graduated from Marquette Catholic High School in 1990 and went on to receive a Bachelor of Arts in Theater from Briarcliff University in Sioux City. It was while pursuing his degree that he learned of his love of directing. He started directing community shows at the Sioux City Community Theater after graduation. He met his wife, Kristen, when he auditioned for one of his shows. He showed up to auditions wearing blue jeans, a t-shirt, and work boots. So my first impression of him was really wrong, Kristen said. I thought he looked like some guy who just watched baseball and drank beer, but I found out he was a very good director and a really good guy. The couple had started dating by the time the curtain went up at the first performance, eight weeks later, when they were married, October 16, 1999, they held their reception at the theater. The couple moved to Dubuque following a year where they both continued their interest in the performing arts. Jeff directed a variety of community shows at Grand Opera House in Dubuque from 2002 to 2018, dedicating a considerable amount of time to making the schedule work for all the actors volunteering their time. He never made any performer feel like they weren't a big part of the cast, said Jeff's brother, Jack Tebby, who acted as... Gaston in a production of Beauty and the Beast. Jeff directed. He really preached that everybody is important and that we all have work have to work together to make it happen. Jeff worked as a residence hall director at Clark University before announcing one day, I'm going to be a college professor. And then he sought his master's degree in adult education at the University of Wisconsin, Platteville, where he taught speech and theater classes for 18 years until his death. He enjoyed helping people find their voice, and he often brought home interesting stories or lessons from the speeches his students gave. When he and Kristen adopted three kittens in 2022, Jeff decided not to declaw them because of the numerous speeches he'd heard over the years about the procedure's negative effects. I think he just liked making a difference in people's lives, Kristen said. Public speaking is one of the top fears that people have. It's like it's death and public speaking. That's what people are afraid of, and Jeff was really good at helping people get over that and realize they could do it.
When Jeff wasn't giving lectures or directing shows, he also acted as an an on-call art teacher for his young nieces. He offered compliments and gentle guidance in in equal measure. A curved line here or something extra shading for there to bring out the best in their work. Proof of his efforts hung around his his and Christian Kristen's Dubuque home, where coloring book pages and inspired freehand drawings hang up around the rooms. He returned the favor by making the girls costumes for Halloween or or plays of their favorite TV characters, and he stayed in touch with his nephews in Kansas, too. Every birthday, he bought me something to draw for art and stuff, and every year he drew me a picture for the first day of school, said Jeff's niece, C.C. Tebby. Jeff passed away suddenly in February after spending the day with his wife and cats. Awake a few days later, drew attendees from all around for over four hours of storytelling, laughs, and heartfelt memories. With each story, it became clear Jeff had left behind quite the legacy. I was just so impressed by the strength of relationships, Jeff's sister, Julie Tebby, said. He didn't go around bragging about it. It wa- He wasn't like, look at how many lives I've touched. He was just, it was just him. He was just him. He was just a kind, good person. School groups to, rather, school groups encourage black students to explore culture. Dubuque High Schools provide safe spaces for people of color. By Elizabeth Kelsey. A small group of students sat around a table in Dubuque Senior High School office, in a Dubuque Senior High School office on Wednesday morning, discussing which black historical figures they would research for a project. Their advisor, Caitlin Daniels, reminded them to focus on leaders of color who were well less, less well known, such as Claudette. Colvin, who was arrested for refusing to give up her seat to a white woman on a bus nine months before Rosa Parks did the same. Quote, I feel like the only ones we really learn in school are Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King Jr., said freshman Kiana Williams. Her classmates nodded in agreement. May he rest in peace, but I know more about that man than he knows about himself, added freshman Tavi Shaw to laughter from the group. Daniels leaned in, quote, so this is what the project is about, not to take away from the importance of them, but to also realize that that's not the only story that needs to be told, she said. The students are members of Senior of Seniors Black Excellence Association, a group the district launched earlier this semester. Se- similar clubs have also begun meeting at Hempstead High School and the district's Alta Vista campus. Jawanza Evans, Equity and Human Resources Specialist for the district, said staff have begun working for about a year to get the groups up and running. She said the Black Excellence Associations hope to, quote, promote awareness, appreciation, and understanding of Black culture, end quote, as well as provide a supportive environment for Black students in the district. When students feel a part of their school's building and classroom culture, I'm sorry, when students feel a part of their school building and classroom culture, it translates into how motivated and how successful they can be in their classes, Evans said. Sometimes students of color don't always feel that connected. Maybe there's a disconnect in the classroom or curriculum where they're not seeing themselves as much. 
Spaces like this give them something to keep them grounded in their buildings and to make them feel, quote, this is a place for me as well, end quote. There are about 150 students across the district involved with the Black Excellence Association so far, according to Evans. The clubs are open to students of all races, but are designed to be a safe space for students of color. At senior, nearly 70 students attended the initial interest meeting for the group earlier this semester, according to Daniels, a life coach at the school who also serves as the group's advisor. Unable to find a consistent meeting space that was large enough to hold the entire group, she had been meeting with them in small groups for the past few weeks. Quote, working as an educator, I realize there are gaps that need to be filled, so I'm glad to be able to be providing that support for these students, she said. Seniors Black Excellence Association is planning a spirit week to be held in April, which will include various dress-up days along with an open mic night where students can share poetry, music, or other creative reflections. The black historical figures they were discussing at Wednesday's meeting are part of the upcoming gallery project, where each student will prepare a presentation and poster on an individual to be shared in some type of public forum later this semester. Quote, a lot of people here at school don't understand the importance of black history, end quote, said sophomore Black Excellence Association member Ariel Williams. Sometimes it can be challenging learning more about your culture, so this group is a place where you can get involved and actually communicate with other black people. In addition to hosting cultural activities and outings, the groups will also include accountability incentives to encourage class attendance and help students identify areas of of potential academic improvement. Black Excellence Association members will sign a, quote, promise to improve, end quote, contract and have periodic check-ins with their advisors to track their progress toward academic and personal goals. Quote, we're hoping to offer some mentorship and leadership opportunities to create well-rounded and culturally confident individuals across the district, Evans said. Winter storm warning issued for tri-state area. Heavy snow possible. Forecasters have issued a winter storm warning covering a swath of the tri-state area for today. The warning area includes Clayton, Delaware, Dubuque, Jackson, and Jones counties in Iowa, Joe Davies County in Illinois, and Crawford and Grant counties in Wisconsin. The warning runs from noon today to 6 a.m. Friday in each county other than Delaware County, where it runs from 9 a.m. today to 3 a.m. Friday, according to the National Weather Service. The Weather Service reports that that heavy snow is possible in the warning area, with accumulations of 5 to 9 inches possible. Iowa and Lafayette counties in Wisconsin are under a winter weather advisory from 2 p.m. today to 6 a.m. on Friday. Public hearing focused on location for New Dubuque, Wisconsin Bridge 45 years ago. Dubuquer, this is by Eric Hogstrom, Dubuquers discussed the location of a planned Mississippi River span 45 years ago. Transportation officials and community leaders grappled with where to place the bridge linking Dubuque and Wisconsin during a hearing in March of 1978. 
Iowa officials suggested linking the steel brow bowstring arch span directly to 14th Street, promoting local concerns that traffic would, I'm sorry, prompting local concerns that traffic would overload Loris Boulevard. The four-lane freeway bridge eventually replaced the Eagle Point Bridge when it opened in August of 1982. An elevated highway portion of US 61-151 was constructed to send traffic out of Dubuque and into southwest Wisconsin over the 2,951-foot bridge. Here is how the Telegraph Herald reported on bridge developments in March 3rd. It's March 3rd, 1978 edition. Dubuque, Wisconsin link goes to final hearing. A public hearing on whether to build the proposed new Mississippi River Bridge over City Island between Dubuque and Wisconsin will be held at 7 p.m. Wednesday, March 15th at the Audubon School Gymnasium, 605 Lincoln Avenue in Dubuque. Most recent public debate on the specific bridge issue has centered on the design of the bridge approach on the Dubuque side. Some feel the Iowa Department of Transportation's proposal to link the bridge directly to 14th Street will overload the traffic capacity of Loris Boulevard, and Dubuque City officials said as late as Friday they were uncertain on how they preferred the approach to be designed. The Dubuque City Council also is expecting to wrestle with the issue at its meeting at 7 p.m. tomorrow. The new bridge is designed to connect with another segment of the Dubuque Metropolitan Area's official long-range transportation plan, a Dubuque freeway. The bridge has environmental clearance from federal and state government, but the freeway does not and probably will not for another year. Environmental approval of the freeway is not guaranteed. The hearing Wednesday is only on the bridge, but Iowa Highway officials said last week that comments on other segments of the transportation plan would be appropriate Wednesday night. Almost all of the necessary right-of-way for the bridge and its temporary approach on the Dubuque side is already government-owned. On the Wisconsin side, however... Most, if not all, the necessary right-of-way, about 120 acres, is privately owned. The proposed interchange on the Wisconsin side would be located on property owned by Laverne Digman, whose family has farmed the vicinity all its life. The bridge approach roads would trisect the Digman's dairy and hog farm, rendering it operable, according to Dave Digman, Laverne's son. You are listening to the Dubuque Telegraph Herald on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is attended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Ann Coke Gare. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, give us a call at 515-243-6833. And now we'll turn to today's obituaries. Daniel P. Murfeld, San Jose, California. Daniel, otherwise, Dan P. Murfeld, 47, a longtime resident of the Madison, Wisconsin, 
area, died unexpectedly in San Jose, California on February 10th, 2023, as a result of an accident. Dan was born on April 9, 1975, in Dubuque, Iowa, the youngest of three sons of Raymond and Ava Esperiti Murfield. He is survived by his son, Taylor J. Gwen Murfield of Dubuque, Iowa. His stepdaughter, Berkeley A. Welsh of Cottage Grove, Wisconsin. His four grandchildren, Raymond M. Murfield, Don M. Murfeld, Mary L. Murfeld, and Lily E. Murfeld. His father, Raymond L. Murfeld of East Dubuque, Illinois. His brothers, Richard L. Joanne Murfeld of Tucson, Arizona, and Robert R. Murfeld of Phoenix, Arizona. His grandmother, Carmen Esperiti of Nogales, Arizona, and his two nieces, Lauren M. Murfeld and Jenna L. Murfeld. He was preceded in death by his mother, Evangelina Eva Esperini, Esperiti Murfeld. Dan was an accomplished tech entrepreneur and later of in Madison's design community. Early in his career, Dan served as vice president of interactive media for Malcolm Advertising, a role that attracted the attention of In Business Magazine, which re recognized him in 2006 as one of Greater Madison's 40 Under 40 top professionals. That same year, Dan founded the Theory 3 Interactive, a web and mobile app development company with partners and clients spanning the globe in spanning the globe. In July 2022, Dan moved the Theory 3's headquarters to San Jose to grow his company in a new market. A believer in quote paying it forward, end quote. For many years, Dan served as president of the nonprofit organization Design Madison, bringing in top designers from around the world to speak to members, build bridges throughout the design community, and collectively study and celebrate design's impact on, in, on society. In recent years, Dan had made multiple trips to Kigali, Rwanda, to teach coding workshops to, to a team of software developers. This rewarding work brought together his talent for teaching his passion for connecting people and his drive to explore new places and cultures. Dan is remembered for being a generous listener, a gifted writer, and public speaker, an avid reader, and lifelong learner, and now an unwavering friend. He loved and an unwavering friend. He loved bringing people together, hosting gatherings, and telling stories. Dan had an exceptional sense of humor, a formidable political wit, and an unquenchable curiosity for all things science and technology related. Above all, Dan was a proud and intensely loving father, son, and grandfather. He will be missed and remembered with the utmost fondness from those fortunate to know him. Condolences may be sent to the family in care of Taylor Murfield, 1016 Romberg Avenue, Dubuque, Iowa, 52001. Marilyn S. Biaste. Marilyn Biaste, 86, of Dubuque, died on Saturday, March 4, 2023. Private services will be held. Egelhoff, Siegert, 
and Casper Funeral Home and Crematory, 2569 John F. Kennedy Road, is assisting the family. Ellen Scully, Cincinnati, Wisconsin. Sister Mary Eileen Marillac Scully, OP, died March 1, 2023 at St. Dominic Villa, Cincinnati, Wisconsin. She had a natural burial at Cincinnati, March 3rd. Her funeral services will be March 13th and 14th. Casey McNett Funeral Home is handling arrangements. Sister Mary Eileen was born February 3rd, 1927 to Charles and Mary McCarthy Scully in Oak Park, Illinois. There were four children. She is survived by one brother, nieces, nephews, and her Dominican family. In 1950, Sister Mary Eileen taught in junior high and then had a long and fruitful career in secondary education as educator, principal, and guidance counselor in Minnesota, Nebraska, and Alabama. She then was elected to a congregation leadership team from 1976 to 1980. She returned then to high school administration in Fairbowl, Minnesota, after a sabbatical and some courageous choices to adapt her guidance skills to limited site capacity, Sister Mary Eileen moved to Chicago and spent 18 years in two high schools in the guidance departments. With determination, hard work, and support, she turned then to a program manager and senior services for the visually impaired with the Blind Services Association of Chicago. Well done, Mary Eileen. You see clearly now in the face of God. Funeral services. Ann Backman, Dubuque, Massive Christian Burial, 11 a.m. Saturday, March 11th, Church of the Resurrection. Larry W. Dahman, Prairie Duchesne, Wisconsin, Vegetation, 10 to 11 today. Garrity Funeral Home, Prairie Duchesne, Massive Christian Burial, 11 a.m. today. St. Gabriel's Catholic Church, Prairie Duchesne. Vera M. Godkin, Manchester, Iowa, visitation 9 to 10.30 a.m. today, Bone Camp Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service, Manchester, Massachusetts, Manchester, Massive Christian Burial, 11 a.m. today at St. Mary's Catholic Church, Manchester, Carol M. Howe, Monona, Iowa, visitation 4 to 7 p.m. today, Leonard Grau Funeral Home and Cremation Service, Monona, and from 11 10 to 11, Friday, March 10th, St. Patrick Catholic Church, Monona Mass of Christian Burial, 11 a.m., Friday at the church. Dwayne Coopersmith, Stockton, Illinois, Visitation, 10 a.m., March 11th, Calvary United Methodist Church, Stockton. Celebration of Life, noon, Saturday at the church, Doyle D. Smith, Galena, Illinois, Service, Noon Friday, March 10th, Furlong Funeral Chapel, Galena. Gordon S. Whitish, Mineral Point, Wisconsin. Visitation, 10 a.m. to 12.30 p.m., Saturday, March 11th. Soman Larson Funeral Home, Mon Montfort. Celebration of Life, 12.30 p.m., Saturday at the Funeral Home. On to the opinion section, Solitude Found in Shadows by Tim Trenkel from the Telegraph Herald, for the Telegraph Herald. The darkness held shades of even darker shadow, and the shadows streamed into the residence floor where the homeless men slept. 
The old man sat again like a stray cat perched by the window. He was a single figure there, washed in the darkness. The lights were off except for a small, waist-high nightlight. He mumbled. In that solitude was was the loneliness and sadness as if the shadow weighed something like an economic slab of steel hovering and readied to kill the spirit. Another figure sat in the dark, propped up against a desk, and was reading an old magazine by the shadows. Quote, you don't know me, end quote, the man at the window said, talking to himself. What did you say? The man with the tattered magazine said. Neither man had a job. The naysayers and blamers say it's because they don't look. Plenty of jobs, the observers awash in their sarcasm will say. But there are not lots of sustaining jobs to pay for rent or food or necessities. There's a sadness in that. A man works, but his labor cannot make ends the ends of the struggle pay for the cost of breathing. The clothes a poor man wears are worn out like his spirit. He quits the colorful cat fashions of red and yellow and rainbow polo shirts. Some of this generation have never worn a brand name shirt. These are the things that wear at the psyche. Psyche, the man in the window and the one at the desk, and the others watching TV as at the homeless shelter see that reality. Makeovers of faces, cars, houses, and the brands carrying the fortunes of the young and the well healed. What did you say? The refrain sounds like a scene in a prison movie where one man peers from his cell and wonders what ha- what's happening in the outside world. Poor child lives with less hygiene for his being and his spirit. The messages the world brings are that you have to make it by yourself. The neighborhood's ally- alleys are swamped by debris and broken bottles, and even the helpers among the locals, the priests and social workers, use the label broken. The poor child's health care, schools, and security are all dramatically less. The chances are that the poor kid will repeat the story of the men in the darkness. They are broken, the pastor says, and passes a few lines of scripture. He says, don't forget the Lord is with you, end quote. Well, it doesn't feel like that. The pastor's alley in the government is quoted as saying they're looking for answers. If you spend a lifetime serving industry in a factory, in an office, in a restaurant, in a franchise, when you age and have changed jobs as the company left town and the industry dried up and the younger labor laborer came to compete, you are left alone, staring out a window, tied up by the nagging feeling. What did you say? In those desolate spaces, it's as if the world has sent a jumble in the media web that is over us all, that the work ethic, honor, the dignity, and sanctity of the golden rule are without meaningful virtue. The bleak house of hunger and the homelessness in the shadow and darkness. The news that income is better than the class system has grown more equitable always misses the swollen bellies of the children of the poor and their parents and the generations of them who will repeat this cycle. A willful ignorance of this pain that cannot be measured is an issue worth thinking about. And in the thoughts that the poor men and women of homeless shelters, of living with nothing entertain, grows of solitary obsession that one must think about enduring hardships because that's all 
That is all life offers, every breath you take. The author, Trinkle, is a community college teacher, resident of Dubuque, and the author of two books about Dubuque. International Women's Day events highlights gaps in gender equality. Hundreds of thousands of people are taking part in demonstrations, rallies, and events across the globe. The, the Associated Press, Madrid. From demands for con- constitutional rights in Islamabad to calls for economic parity in Manila, Paris, and Madrid, International Women's Day demonstrations in cities around the world Wednesday highlighted the unfinished work of providing equity for half of the planet's population. While activists in some places celebrated political and legal advances, observers also pointed to repression in countries such as Afghanistan and Iran and the large numbers of women and girls who experience sexual assaults and domestic violence globally. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres noted this week that women's rights were, quote, abused, threatened, and violated, end quote, around the world and gender equity Gender equality won't be achieved for 300 years given the current pace of change. Progress won over decades is vanishing because the patriarchy is fighting back, Guerte said. Even in countries where women have considerable freedom, there have been recent setbacks. This was the first International Women's Day since the U.S. Supreme Court ended the constitutional right to abortion last year and many states adopted the restrictions on abortion. The United Nations recognized International Women's Day in 1977, but the occasion has its roots in labor movements in the early 20th century. The day is commemorated in different ways and to varying degrees in different countries. The United Nations identified Afghanistan as the most repressive country in the world for women and girls since the Taliban takeover in 2021. The UN mission said Afghanistan's new rulers were imposing rules that leave most women and girls effectively trapped in their homes. They have banned girls' education beyond sixth grade and barred women from public spaces such as parks and gyms to women must cover themselves from head to toe and are also barred from working at national and international governmental organizations. Afghan women's rights campaigner Zubaida Akbar told the UN Security Council that women and girls in the country are facing the worst crises for women's rights in the world. The Talbian have sought not only to erase women from public life, but to extinguish our basic humanity, said Zubaida. There is one term that, that appropriately describes the situation of Afghan women today, gender apartheid. Women gathered in Pakistan, Pakistan's major cities to march amid tight security. Organizers said the demonstrations were aimed at seeking rights guaranteed by the Constitution. Some conservative groups last year threatened to stop similar marchers by force. Women's rights activists in Japan held small rally to renew their demand for the government to allow married couples to keep using different surnames. Under the 1898 Civil Code, 
a couple must adopt, quote, the surname of the husband or wife, end quote, at the time of marriage. Surveys show majority support for both men and women keeping their own names. In the Philippines, hundreds of protesters from various women's groups rallied in Manila for higher wages and decent jobs. We are seeing the wildest, the widest gender pay gap, protest leader Joam Salvador said. The first female leader of Tanzania, President Samia Soluhu Hassan, said during the an International Women's Day rally organized by opposition opposition party that she has brought a new level of political tolerance to the East African nation. Hassan has been accused of continuing her predecessor John Magufuli's anti-democratic policies, but she's lifted a six-year-old ban on opposition rallies in January. The opposition is lucky that it is women president in charge because if a misunderstanding occurs, I will stand for peace and make the men settle their egos, the president said. In Turkey, women converge on a central Istanbul neighborhood to try and demonstrate for the rights for their rights and protest the staggering toll of the deadly quake that hit Turkey and Syria a month ago. Thousands braved an official ban on the march and were met by police who fired tear gas and detained several people. Similar incidents marred past year's efforts to hold the march. Harry and Meghan's daughter, christened, will use royal title. London. Prince Harry and his wife, Meghan, announced Wednesday that their daughter has had been christened in a private ceremony in California, public, publicly calling her a princess and revealing... For the first time, they will use royal titles for their children. Princess Lilibet Diana, who turns two in June, was baptized on Friday by the Archbishop of Los Angeles, the Reverend John Taylor. Harry and Meghan said in a statement, Lilibet's title and that of her brother Archie, who will be four in May, will be updated on the Buckingham Palace website later. The announcement marked the first time that the children's titles have been used in public. New Disney World board hints at future controversy. At first meeting, the DeSantis-appointed board members meet with the public by Mike Schneider, the Associated Press, Lake Buena Vista, Florida. The first meeting of the new board of Walt Disney's World's government overhauled by sweeping legislation signed by Republican Governor Ron DeSantis as punishment for Disney's publicly challenging Florida's so-called don't say don't don't say gay bill dealt with the rote affairs any other municipal government would handle calls for better firefighter equipment lessons on public's records requests, and bond ratings. But the five board members appointed by DeSantis hinted Wednesday at a future controversial actions they may take, including prohibiting COVID-19 restrictions at Disney World and recommending the elimination of two cities that were created after the Florida legislature in 1967 approved the theme park resort's self-governance. 
The board also approved hiring the same law firm that advised the governor's office in making changes to the governing district to help interpret the new legislation. For the most part, the new board members listened in a hotel ballroom outside Disney World as members of the public and workers from the district's department explained what they do. Martin Garcia, the board's new chair, said the major distinction between the old board controlled by Disney and the new one appointed by DeSantis will be a broader constituency encompassing more than just a single company, instead also representing workers and residents of surrounding communities. You didn't elect us, but the people of Florida elected a governor who appointed us, Garcia said. I see there will be much broader representation. The other new board members for what has been rechristened the Central Florida Tourism Oversight District included Bridget Ziegler, a conservative school board member and wife of the Florida Republican Party, Chairman Christian Ziegler, Brian Angst, Jr., an attorney and son of former two-term Republican mayor of Clearwater, Mike Sasso, an attorney, and Ron Perry, head of the Gathering USA Ministry. They replaced a board that had been controlled by Disney during the previous 55 years that the government operated as the Reedy Creek Improvement District. The new name will require a new logo to replace the old one that's on one twenty that's on one hundred and twenty three vehicles, three hundred trash cans, and one thousand dollar manhole covers, District Administrator John Clace told the board members. January job openings dip still high at ten point eight million. The Associated Press, Washington. U.S. employees posted ten point eight million job openings in January, indicating The American job market continues to run too hot for the inflation fighters at the Federal Reserve. Job openings fell from 11.2 million in December but remained high by historical standards, the Labor Department reported Wednesday. Employers also hired more workers in January, but layoffs rose. For 20 straight months, employers have posted at least 10 million openings, a level never reached before 2021 in Labor Department data going back to 2000. The number of openings in January exceeded what economists had forecast and translates to about two vacancies for every unemployed American. Still, there are more signs, more Still, there are some signs the job market is cooling in the labor markets, monthly job openings, and labor turnover summary. Report. Amid high-profile job cuts at many big tech companies such as Google and Amazon, overall layoffs rose in January to 1.7 million, highest since December 2020, and the number of Americans quitting their jobs, a sign they are confident they can find better pay or working conditions elsewhere, fell to the lowest level since April of 21. The American job market has been surprisingly resilient in the face of pushing, punishing inflation and rising interest rates. The years 2021 and 2022 were the two best years for job creation in official records date dating to 1940. Hiring was expected to slow this year. Instead, employers added a stunning 517 
100,000 jobs in January, and economists expect that they added another 208,000 208,000 jobs last month, according to a survey of forecaster by the data firm FactSet. The February numbers come out Friday. In January, the unemployment rate fell to 3.4%, lowest since 1969. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. I'm your reader, Ann Coke Gare. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.
in the People's Pharmacy Health Headlines. At high doses, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like diclofenac, ibuprofen, or naproxen may increase the risk of kidney problems. The study that revealed this used de-identified medical records of more than 750,000 active-duty U.S. Army soldiers. Consequently, these were active, young, and middle-aged adults. During the time of the study, from 2011 through 2014, nearly 18% of these soldiers got a prescription for one to seven doses of an NSAID pain reliever in a month. Another 16% were prescribed more than seven doses in a month. Fewer than 1% of these people were subsequently diagnosed with acute or chronic kidney disease. Nevertheless, the rate of kidney trouble was about 20% higher among people who had received high-dose NSAIDs than among those who had taken none. The authors described the increased risk as modest but statistically significant. Another class of drugs that can lead to kidney injury is proton pump inhibitors. A data mining initiative of the FDA's Adverse Event Reporting System analyzed kidney-related side effects among 43,000 people who took a drug such as esomeprazole, lansoprazole, or omeprazole. Approximately 8,000 people taking a histamine 2 blocker such as ranitidine or famotidine served as controls since they take these drugs for similar symptoms. The researchers found that 5.6% of people on PPIs alone had a kidney-related side effect, while only 0.7% of those on H2 blockers did. Chronic kidney disease was 28 times more likely, and acute kidney injury was four times more likely among people taking PPIs. While this analysis shows association, not causation, there are previous studies linking PPIs and kidney damage. There's growing concern about a mysterious infectious disease that has been spreading among the wild deer population for decades. Scientists call it CWD, or chronic wasting disease. Hunters refer to this condition as zombie deer disease. It can also affect elk and moose. The CDC reports that this infectious disease has spread to wildlife in 24 states and two Canadian provinces. CWD was first detected in Colorado among captive deer in the 1960s and in the wild deer population in the 1980s. It's now affecting deer in the Midwest, Southwest, and some parts of the East Coast. The disease appears to be caused by a prion infection reminiscent of mad cow disease. An infectious disease expert at the University of Minnesota has warned that hunters who eat contaminated deer meat may eventually develop the human equivalent of chronic wasting disease. Shoulder replacement surgery is becoming increasingly common. Now researchers writing in the BMJ say that patients should be warned that the risks are higher than originally thought. The investigators reviewed hospital and mortality records in the UK. When men between 50 and 59 have this type of shoulder surgery, one in four will need further surgery on that shoulder within five years. In addition, older people who underwent this kind of surgical procedure experienced high rates of serious adverse events. One in nine older women and one in five older men had an infection, major blood clot, heart attack or stroke, or died within three months. The authors of the study encouraged their colleagues to counsel patients about the risks as well as the benefits of this kind of surgery. Drug interactions are a serious hazard in hospitals and the community. 
If patients receive prescriptions for incompatible medications, they can experience severe side effects that may even be life-threatening. Electronic medical records are intended to warn prescribers and pharmacists about potentially dangerous interactions, but many do so indiscriminately. The result is something called alert fatigue. If clinicians receive too many warnings, they may not pay attention to the really important ones. A team at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital reviewed their alert system. They removed unnecessary alerts and provided additional information to the most important ones. After they finished, they tracked clinicians' reactions. Alert overrides dropped by 40%. One important change linked alerts to the patient's laboratory data, making them much more targeted. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Are you among the millions of Americans living with chronic pain? If so, you may think prescription opioids are the solution. The truth is, the benefits of opioids are limited. Opioids only mask the pain. Opioids also come with serious side effects, ranging from nausea to withdrawal symptoms to overdose. As many as 25% of people who are prescribed opioids struggle with addiction. And those who are addicted to opioids are 40 times more likely to move on to heroin. No one wants to live in pain, but no one should put their health at risk to be pain-free. There is another choice, physical therapy. Physical therapists treat pain through movement and exercise, no warning labels required, and you get to be an active participant in your care. Choose to treat your pain safely. Choose physical therapy. Visit moveforwardpt.com to find a physical therapist near you. This public service announcement is brought to you by the American Physical Therapy Association.